Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Do you want to improve your listening situation? Go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the promo code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Enter that promo code and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. All right, guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me sitting here talking. This is you over there crouched in the ready position. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I am uh, sitting here in Los Angeles. With Halloween uh, imminent, this is the Halloween episode. I've decided that. And uh, Halloween, of course, is coming up just a few days from now, Saturday. And uh, with this in mind, I have procured some uh, Halloween sound effects. My guest today is Alex Marsh. She has a new book of nonfiction out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. The book is called Witches of America. It's a riveting account of Alex's five-year journey into the occult. She is, among other things, uh, a journalist and a filmmaker, and uh, she spent uh, a couple years making a documentary film called American Mystic. Perhaps you saw that, and uh, she also uh, wrote this book, both of which deal with witchcraft, uh, paganism, magic. Just had a great time talking with her. Very fascinating conversation, very fascinating uh, book, and uh, a window into a world that is it's sort of like right under your nose, but you don't realize it's there, if that makes sense. She was here just a little bit ago, and so I thought I would share uh, the conversation with you now because Halloween is imminent. But uh, before we get any further, I just want to give you guys a quick reminder about the Other People app. This podcast has its own app. You know that, right? The free Other People app. It's available now wherever apps are available. It's free. It's the best way to listen New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. Uh, and then here's how it works. When you go get the app on your device, 
And remember, the app is free. You get the app on your device, and then the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. You get the most recent 50 for free, and then if you want access to everything, if you want to be able to stream all of the episodes, uh, nearly 400 episodes and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It costs uh, 75 cents a month or thereabouts. It's very cheap. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. All of the interviews, including conversations with writers like Leslie Jameson, Cheryl Strayed, Susan Orlean, Edward Jodantica, Jonathan Leitham, Eric Larson, George Saunders, and so on. So please go get the Other People app. It's available now for free wherever apps are available. So uh, in other news, and I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, the Other People podcast got a bit of a mention in uh, the Sunday edition of the New York Times this past weekend. Yes, indeed. It's uh, a story in the Times called, uh, quote, NPR voice has taken over the airwaves. And uh, broadly speaking, it's about the way people in broadcasting talk, particularly people on NPR, public radio, the influence of that on our culture. It's, it's a very distinct style. I think we can agree. And uh, I think most of us have a sense of it, right? Like if you say uh, to a friend of yours, hey, talk in NPR voice, chances are that person will be able to, to do it. They'll be able to deliver a reasonable approximation. Or uh, perhaps if they're very skilled uh, as a performer, they'll break into an Ira Glass impersonation or possibly Steve Inskeep. Who incidentally uh, went to my high school in Indiana? I believe he did. I'm not 100% uh, percent sure on that, but uh, Steve Inskeep is from my hometown. I know that for a fact. And I know his little brother. I went to school with his little brother, Jimmy. So anyway, the, the uh, problem, if that's what you want to call it, that was posited by this uh, New York Times article is that, there, you know, that a lot of these pauses that you hear in NPR delivery, a lot of this quote-unquote unscriptedness is actually an illusion. It's actually very scripted in reality. It's carefully crafted to sound colloquial. Colloquial. You know, it's like a calculated performance of casual delivery, which of course would seem to uh, cut against the idea of authenticity. It's confusing. You know, it can get confusing. So where it gets good, uh, from my perspective anyway, and you know what, before I do this, I should say, just for the record, that the author of this article, uh, the article in question is Teddy Wayne, who has been a guest on this program back in episode 143. I don't know Teddy, other than the hour we spent talking uh, a couple years ago. I believe it was January 2013. But I figured I would mention it as a matter of full disclosure. So the article goes on to say, and I quote, from the New York Times, paper of record, quote, Nonetheless, the pre-planned responses of NPR personalities sound somewhat counterfeit when stacked against the largely, if not completely unscripted monologues that open raw podcasts such as Mark Maron's WTF and Brad Listy's Literary Other People podcast. Mr. Listy, for instance, frequently allows for lengthy pauses in between sentences that convey, without stage directions, the process of someone thinking aloud. End quote. 
So not bad, right? I'll take that. I'll take that press in the New York Times. I'll take some lengthy pauses, thinking aloud. And, you know, uh, like to go beyond that, beyond any like stylistic concern, the article makes me think about uh, my approach to all of this. It makes me reflect on that. Like the uh, my my sense of broadcasting or podcasting or whatever it is that I've been doing here for the past four years. Uh, I've mentioned a lot of times uh, in the past, I think, uh, you know, and in various interviews that I've done that I'm a big fan of radio and uh, I was a fan of podcasts before I started my own and have maybe been kind of a radio geek since childhood, like liking radio to a degree that might exceed that of the average person. And uh, I certainly have my list of heroes. Howard Stern is at the top of the list. I'm playing this music uh, in his honor right now. And uh, I think when it comes to authenticity on the air and uh, a broadcaster turning himself inside out and crossing lines and pushing boundaries, uh, nobody's been more important, at least not to me. And uh, I'm aware that arguments, you know, arguments can be made that uh, some of his humor misses the mark or uh, is insensitive at times. But uh, my feeling on him is that if you listen to him for a while, you start to realize that there's a very deep and warm uh, intelligence at work. And that he's somebody who's done a lot of like really good thinking about the medium and what it means and what it can mean. And he's a comic performer, which lends itself towards, or lends itself to, uh, offending people at times. He's no dummy. And uh, I think he's a really good guy at heart. And his show to me, especially in, uh, you know, most recently in the satellite years has just always been a huge relief to listen to and very inspirational. I think it can be easy to overlook how much uh, goes into one of those shows and how difficult it would be to do four or five hours of radio in the morning, day in and day out. I mean, especially back when they were doing five days a week. Now they do. You're lucky to get two. <laughs> but even that, to make it good and to make it consistently funny and to cover that much time and to do interviews that are that good. His interviews are incredible, I think. That isn't easy. Just the control that he maintains on the air has always sort of amazed me. Uh, so he's there at the top. I could gush about him for hours. Uh, Mark Marin, who's mentioned in the uh, in the bit from the New York Times in conjunction with this show, uh, his podcast has been a big inspiration. The confessional nature of it, the honesty, uh, but also and and perhaps primarily is the sense of community uh, community that it has fostered, primarily among comedians, but uh, now. I think uh, kind of the you know the wider entertainment industry, which apparently includes the president of the United States, <laughs> which isn't really that far off. You know, it's not that far of a reach when you think about it. But uh, you know, WTF when it came out and it started to uh, pick up speed and really get an audience, it opened my eyes to the way in which a podcast could bring about a sense of uh, connectedness in a particular artistic community. And uh, it inspired me to want to do something similar for writers. Is that too much with the music? Should I, I mean, should I keep it going? I guess I'll keep it going. But uh, to get back to WTF and uh, the sense of community, 
I, you know, I hadn't quite seen a show work like that before. So hats off to Mark and then Terry Gross, another one. I love Fresh Air. I used to fall asleep. This is something you might not know about me. I used to fall asleep listening to Fresh Air uh, every night for like two or three years of my life. Kind of a phase I went through back in like 2002 through 2004. A lot of, uh, a lot of Terry Gross post 9-11. <laughs> She's who I turned to. And, you know, her show is obviously more polished and quote-unquote professional uh, than this show or other podcasts or WTF even. But uh, the empathy and humanity and intelligence that she conveys is just, uh, you know, very obvious when you listen to her. It's very obvious that Terry Gross is a really good person. I'd be very disappointed to learn that she is not. Let's put it that way. And I think, you know, as a person who... Uh, does a show like this, what she teaches you to do is is she teaches you how to listen. She's an incredible listener. Uh, You can kind of feel her listening. And then she, she always seems to ask the perfect question or the question that you're asking in your own head. She's great at anticipating that way. Uh, And it's just a total pro. And uh, I think that the body of interviews that she's done over her career is a a cultural treasure that's going to be of value to people for a long time to come which is an awesome legacy in my, uh, in my view. So, you know, I, I don't mean to go on and on, but with uh, the New York Times piece in mind, these sorts of people, it seems natural to think about them and to talk about them. Ira Glass as well. I have to mention Ira. This American Life is an incredible show uh, and has been for years, and I think as a storyteller, uh, somebody who's interested in narrative, that show can be like heroin. I mean, if you get a really good episode of This American Life... Uh, to me, it's every bit as gripping as any uh, film or novel that really hits you. And there's a lot more. You know, I know I'm forgetting people. Um, David Letterman, even though he's TV, huge influence. John Stewart. Just people who interview people, people who communicate, make me laugh. So if you're ever wondering about this program's DNA, I think uh, you would start there with the, the folks that I mentioned. Those are the people who got me going or taught me how to do this or taught me that I wanted to try to do this in whatever weird way that I'm doing this. <laughs> and, you know, it was gratifying to read the paper. Uh, you know, I sus- I've been a subscriber to the New York Times for a long time. I've read it every day for a long time. It was gratifying, I must say, this past weekend to open it up, open up the print edition, and to read what was said about this program. The fact that when you listen to this program, at least insofar as Teddy Wayne is concerned, it sounds reasonably authentic. It sounds uh, perhaps to an unusual degree uh, human. Like there's a person sitting here talking to you and thinking aloud in front of a microphone. Like I, I, uh, I took radio in high school. My high school offered radio. I went to a public high school in suburban Indianapolis, and uh, it had its own FM station, WHJE, and you could take radio and be a DJ. And uh, I was a DJ for a year in high school, uh, WHJE 91.3. 
Here's Tom Petty, Don't Do Me Like That, <laughs> on WHJE. And uh, the point is, when I was taking radio classes, like day one radio classes, my junior year of high school or whatever, uh, the first thing they teach you is that dead air, which is another way of saying silence, dead air was the enemy. Never let it be silent. Never let there be dead air because people will turn the station. That's sort of the law of FM radio or terrestrial radio. Silence is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And, you know, what I've found over the years is that I actually love silence in a broadcast. Jim Rome does this, the uh, the sportscaster. Howard does it sometimes. You know, it, ob- it obviously doesn't work in every context, but I think you gotta you got to be willing to let it go silent. Think things over. Let your listeners have a moment. I feel like sometimes you guys need a second. <laughs> I don't know. I like it. Silence is, is uh, powerful. It's the voice of God. So, what am I trying to say? I guess, uh, I guess my feeling is that when I started the show uh, four years ago, I wanted it to deliver precisely this kind of experience for listeners. I wanted it to be real. And uh, I don't edit a lot on this show. Most episodes of this program, I don't edit very much at all. Conversation uh, that you hear is the conversation that happened right here. And yeah, sometimes this leads to uh, quote unquote unprofessional moments, uh, mistakes that might make you cringe or uh, feel annoyed or possibly even worried about me <laughs> or all of the above. I like to leave that stuff in on purpose. Unless uh, the person that I'm interviewing seems really unhappy with the interview or has specifically asked me to cut things out for personal or uh, professional reasons, or really is fixated on editing. In some instances, uh, but not all, I'll do that. I mean, I I, I try to be accommodating as much as I can. I don't want people to hate their experience of doing this show. It's not worth it to me. But uh, the truth is, it almost never happens. I can count on one hand how many times that's happened to me in four years. Almost 400 interviews, and uh, 99% of them, they haven't said a thing. Which I'm grateful for. So, I think that's that's really the thing, you know. The reason it sounds raw or unscripted is because it actually is, almost entirely. If I'm silent, it really is because I don't know what to say. (laughs) And, uh... If I say something stupid or accidentally offensive, that's because people say stupid, offensive things sometimes. And I am a person. And I feel like if I cut that stuff out and polish the show to include only the quote-unquote best material or the best version of myself, uh, it would rob the show of some of its humanity. And I don't like that. I don't want to do that. Now, sometimes I wrestle with myself and I say, God, are you just trying to justify laziness? You could go through and do it, you know, an edit. But I want the show to feel like you're eavesdropping. And conversations can be messy. Now, if they're too messy, it's not listenable. But I don't think that they're that messy. People listen. I think people listen. (laughs) It seems like they do. 
And, you know, I think there's a place for more traditional old school broadcasting, and that's probably NPR, like terrestrial radio. And in terms of TV, you have the major networks and you have your major, your major uh, cable channels. But in the realm of the Internet and uh, the realm of podcasts, the digital realm, you know, the digital realm, to emulate NPR there or to try to do that kind of show or that kind of broadcasting, it, it just never made a ton of sense to me. It seems out of place. And frankly, I think, uh, I think things are changing a bit. I think podcasting is influencing traditional radio more than the other way around. Or that's the direction that it's headed. That's the vector. And I feel like podcasting is a form that uh, is you know, obviously starting to pick up steam and take hold in a, in a mainstream way. To the point where my parents are almost going to start listening to podcasts. They're not there yet, but it could happen. It's feasible. And it wasn't that way at all, like three or four years ago. So it's just about trying to be a human being, warts and all, and trying to talk to people and bridge that gap a little bit. You can uh, you can go to the New York Times website and read the article for yourself if you want. I also have it linked on uh, otherpeople.com, otherppl.com. And uh, at one point in the article, Teddy Wayne references David Foster Wallace uh, vis-a-vis something that Maud Newton wrote. Uh, Maud Newton, incidentally, has also been a guest on this program back in, uh, I think it was episode 50. But with, uh, with regard to David Foster Wallace, I, Maud wrote a while back a piece about his conversational style and the impact uh, that his prose style has had on literature and on the blogosphere and so on. But uh, what I want to say about him what comes to mind when I, you know, with his name in the article is that, uh, you know, he, he sort of famously said something about the purpose of fiction once. I think it was in an, inter- you know, in an interview or in an essay, and he was talking about fiction as an empathetic, you know, an empathetic exercise, uh, an art form designed to make people feel less alone. A lot of people have said this, like many writers whom I've talked uh, with on this program have said exactly this in one form or another, talking about empathy and loneliness and how fiction and great writing can provide access to another person's consciousness with a kind of intimacy and depth uh, that few other art forms allow. Not just fiction either, like memoir literature bridges that divide. And my feeling has always been that radio or, or podcasting or whatever you want to call it at its very best can perform uh, this exact same function. Beyond just a straight reading of the news, which you know has its place in the world, uh, but beyond that, a microphone and some speakers or some headphones and some form of distribution, whether it's a, a broadcast antenna or the internet, it can be a very powerful combination. It can really connect. That's what it's done for me as a listener. Good radio, a good interview a good podcast, the word that comes to mind uh, for me is relief. It's such a relief to listen to uh, something like that. And my goal with this show from the beginning, and I know I'm I'm running the risk of sounding precious when I say this, but the goal uh, of this show from day one has been to deliver that kind of experience, trying to bring relief. And uh, I know I don't always hit the mark. And I know that sometimes I probably bring the opposite of relief. (laughs) 
that's what I'm aiming for. So, uh, thanks to Teddy Wayne for writing about the show. And if there, if, if ever there was a time for a pregnant pause, I think it would be now a ceremonial pregnant pause in honor of the other people podcast getting mentioned in the Sunday edition of the New York times. Uh, let, let us all enjoy a moment of silence. Happy Halloween, you guys. Did I get you? Did I scare you? Are you scared? Did you jump on the subway? What are you doing right now? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Alex Marr. Uh, Her new book is called Witches of America. And uh, it is superb. It's available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Witches of America. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Alex Marr. It's a Cretan name. It's, it's a, a Cretan, Cretan name. name. Yeah. And uh, is is Marr like your pen name, or is that was yeah. the name changed by your family? I used I used the uh, I kind of created the name when I was doing performance art. Very uh, it started like late in college, and then in my early twenties, video art and performance art. It was a brief period of a few years, and it wasn't a formal name change. It was just, um, just seemed fun and kind of freeing to have an alias, and it stuck. It was just, it just uh, actually there was a real pleasure to having this, you know, alter ego for the work. Uh, yeah. And now it just feels like, uh, you know, it doesn't. I, I don't think that my my work now is. How do you sign your checks? You sign it like Alex Mar? You sign it your your uh, the both law? both both yeah yeah. So can you do that, or do you have to do something legal? <laughs> I think uh, I think sometimes you do like an AKA on certain forms, but um, yeah, it's it's like a little loop in the system apparently. No one really asked me about it. Like a DBA. Mm, I don't know. Plus, don't it's know. like a long Greek name. They might just be like, you know what? Maybe she just got tired of like writing all that. It's That's a, the assumption. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many letters is the name? Can you tell us that? Yeah, sure. It's uh, I think twelve. Okay. Yeah, I think twelve. Um, That's a healthy length. It's a healthy length, and uh, yeah. So my uh, my dad is from Crete. My mom is from Cuba, but I grew up, I was born and raised in, in New York City. So. You don't meet too many Cretan Cubans. No, although I have met some um, Greek men paired with Latin women. It's apparently some kind of combination that's it's a thing. out there. Yeah, I think I think maybe the Greekness needs to be lightened up with some Latin. But Greeks are serious? Uh well, in my family there's there's a certain level of intensity on the Greek side that's very um yeah. 
it's it's a little much. It really brings the the Greek tragedies to life, you know, from from ancient times. Right. <laughs> and then the Cuban side is is more, you know, when there's adversity, you deal with it by like drinking and dancing and eating good food, you know. So so there's really like two approaches to 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 troublesome times. And which one? Like, where do you fall? Like, are you more? Do you feel like as in terms of your, uh, you know, temperament or? personality or whatever are you more of the cuban uh, or more of the greek i've i think i've spent years of my adult life trying to to more actively cultivate my cuban side yeah so i think haven't I think, we all though really <laughs> yeah it's uh so yeah i've been i've been my my brother's more naturally cuban and i think i i i'm a little more naturally greek and so i'm i'm yeah i'm channeling my cuban side lately okay uh but you're from new york Yes. Born and raised in the city. Born and raised. Yeah. So all kinds of things that are not normal or healthy seem completely standard. To and what, me. Like, what do you mean? What was it like? You grow up. I'm always fascinated. I'm, I'm a kid from the Midwest. Every time oh, really? I, yeah. Every time I talk to somebody who was, uh, you know, born and raised in Manhattan, uh, it seems like some sort of like fantasia to me. I can't even imagine what childhood must have been like having exposure to all that. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, my, my parents were very strict. Um, one, one night in high school, I remember getting... Uh, really mad at them for not letting me leave the house for some reason and, and I was on the phone with a friend and I very loudly said well you know my parents they're immigrants <laughs> you know? um, and that that I never lived that one down um, but um, but still at the same time you know I, I can't even believe some of the things that that uh, we all got up to in high school I mean you know like going to adult nightclubs uh, and you know that kind of stuff that was pre Giuliani that's for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I managed to stay away from real scandal, but the stuff that I considered normal lifestyle activity was, is, is But also strange. just cultural access. Like even oh, yeah. Just through osmosis, like just being yeah. there and being around. Yeah. I was a moody, you know, angsty, artsy teenager. You know, even I remember at like 12, 13 years old, I would go um, – uh, I grew up partly on the Upper East Side and then downtown. And uh, and Uptown was amazing because I would just go, you know, walk around the Met, pay like a quarter, and just be moody walking around, you know, the ancient Egyptian wing or looking at these That's amazing what I'm paintings. Talking about. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I really, uh, I went to I really the strip mall. Yeah. <laughs> Got like Mike and Ike's and, you know, whatever. I might have had a you know, kind of like one up on you. And that, <laughs> that department was classier. <laughs> so, what are your uh, your parents are immigrants? What brought them to the states? Uh, well, I mean, my mother's family came over because of a small revolution, right? Um, and then uh, my my dad's side of the family actually, we never really found out exactly. His father, um, my grandfather, was a, a tailor in their village in Crete, and um, he was doing well enough um, as the village tailor. And then um, one day, he just sort of uh, decided to up and move the family to the States. And, and I think it, everyone just assumed it was sort of like, you know, to try your fortune in America. Um, but I, I don't know if it was any more specific than that. And so he opened up um, kind of like the equivalent of a, like a, a middle-class couture shop in Queens. So all of the local Greek ladies would come and, and get, you know, specifically like, ta- like dresses specifically tailored to them um, by, by my grandfather. So, oh, so he, was, he, could, he could tailor for women. Yeah, he he was making he was making formal dresses for women and and sort of like um, you know formal suits and that kind of thing. And he had a team of women in the back room working on sewing machines, and everything was Greek. Uh, like all the people working there it was very much this sort of transplanted um, community. That's cool. Yeah, it was really interesting. You know, looking back on it, is I was, it a family I was business? Like, did it carry through or no? Like- no, no, that was that was that. And then my my 
my father moved um, moved into Manhattan and, and uh, kind of broke through on Wall Street. Okay. Uh, at a time when breaking you know, through. Well, well, there weren't any. There were no women. That's for sure. There were no minorities, and there were no like immigrant kids. And he had one suit, and it was a shiny mohair suit, and he wore it to what the What is a mohair room. suit? Because <laughs> I, I, it's from the Elton John song, you know, like uh, oh, really? Benny, Benny and the Jets. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Electric b- a mohair suit. You uh-huh. know, I read it in a mag. You know what I'm saying? I've always wondered, like, what the hell is a mohair suit? I mean, suit? I, look, I looked it up because I, I, I think it's like a very, very uh, finely matted, shiny, I mean, like, really that you wouldn't, you just wouldn't wear this right now. Okay. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's good that it's transitioned out. That's that's sort of the idea. So he became, what, a stockbroker? Um, in, he was working in bonds later on. That, yeah. That's such a mystery to me, that whole... I don't even know what that means, bonds. I when I was a child, I thought that it was, you know, sort of like a lemonade stand with bonds. And yeah. that's what he did. <laughs> he went and he stood somewhere. But it was very, um, you know, my my mother's side was... was My mother was always, like, much more actively, uh, vocally excited about the arts. So we would go to museums and galleries and... Um, and your dad's would... like, hey, kids, look at these bonds. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> He's a... Uh, He's an intense personality. I, yeah, I get. I think a lot of my drive comes from him, and uh, maybe. Uh, was he strict with you? Yeah, I mean, because you went yeah. to Harvard, so like, was he like, you got to get the good grades, you got to do? Because a lot of times too, I've had uh, writers on this program um, who are either first generation or you know second generation, mm. and a lot of times in immigrant communities or in immigrant families, there is maybe a bit more intense uh, emphasis on. Don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I mean, you know, what's funny is I had this sort of um, strange internal drive. I mean, I grew up very comfortably because my dad, you know, and my mom both like worked very hard to, you know, and managed to get some kind of success. And um, but did he do like fabulously well? He did. He did very well. Like American Uh, dream. I think so. Not on some ridiculous level, but yeah, for sure. I mean, to the point where, I mean, I grew up thinking that the American dream was just a thing. It was just, you know, it actually worked, right? right. <laughs> so that was sort of like the family assumption. And um, now here you are in this garage. And yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I didn't translate that to the arts. I just, you know, I didn't sort of like understand that it's different. But um, yeah, I um, I don't know. I think I, think I, I was just unusually, I had a... Uh, kind of like this strange fire in my belly from a very young age. I no idea where it came, where it comes no, from. Seriously, no idea. I mean, it's one of those nature nurture things where you're like, huh. Um, I I I just felt like I had something to prove. I guess uh, as um, Are you competitive. Like if you play yeah. ping pong and you lose, do you get pissed off. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, ping pong doesn't really come up very often, so I, it's okay. I, just, I use it as an example. <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, I just um, actually when I was uh, when I was twelve years old, I had this incredible good fortune to have an English teacher at my school who um, really uh, really turned me on to 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 writing by people who were alive and they were American instead of dead British people. And um, <clears throat> is it do you do you know of uh, the novelist and short story writer Christine Scott? Yeah, I've had her on the show. No. Yes. Oh my gosh, she was my so she was my teacher when I was just a, like a tween and then on and off throughout high school and she introduced Wait, me. she was your high school English teacher? Yeah. Where did you go to high school? Uh a school called Nightingale Bamford. 
Oh man, that sounds fancy. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it was girls in pleated skirts. Okay. Yeah. Um and so, you know, not not a not a place that was just wild with artistic experimentation, but um Christine was an incredible teacher. I mean, she <laughs> she uh she introduced me and you know the other kids to like at 12 13 14 years old it was like uh Raymond Carver, Barry Hanna, Richard Ford, um Robert Lowell, yeah. Mark Richard, um I mean just like it was an incredibly long crazy list of people and um See that's a teacher who wasn't going off of like just the standard syllabus. You know like the, I feel oh, like Oh no, yeah, yeah. It had it was it was definitely it was sort of um I really love the assumption that uh, I I just love being taken seriously. That was that was really the feeling of that. Like and you so can suddenly, handle this. You can handle this. Oh yeah, and not even yeah yeah very much the sense of um, you could be doing this kind of. I mean, I have no idea where she got this from, but but her approach was very much you could you could be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? Did she single you out and say you were talented? <laughs> no, because I, I, the reason I ask is because I feel like a lot of times in the lives of people, but you know, uh, specific to this show and the lives of writers, there it tends to be an adult or multiple adults uh, in a in a writer's life who, at some point, like look at them and say, "Hey, you can do this." Like, did you get that kind of reinforcement at that age? Or? She was really supportive. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think I think yeah, I felt um, it was like uh, it was uh, definitely transformative for me. Yeah, you know, I mean, it. I just, I, I just like took off. Were you on that? Then were you on a course to be a writer from that age? Like, yeah, and then I, and then I completely, then I, then I went to Harvard and immediately shut down, just totally shut down. Just felt like the environment creatively felt just so uptight. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Which was sort of, and it, and I don't know whether or not that, that that was fair. Do you like Harvard? I actually had a, I had a great time just because you're surrounded by a bunch of brilliant people and some you know total knuckleheads, but um, but uh, but yeah, there were amazing people there. And you sort of in the arts community there is relatively small, so you know. Because most people these days from the Ivies uh, in top schools in America, they're going into finance. Well, I don't think that's a new thing. That was definitely that was always still, the case. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, like yeah, I was looking at, I was looking business at business or or like uh, international relations or politics, right. like things things where, where power, where, yeah, yeah, exactly. Where there was sort of the sense that, uh, or you were going to become a serious academic, and and either way, you know, like your your future income, there's like a wide disparity there. And I didn't fit into any of those categories, so um, so yeah, I I shut I shut down, and uh, it was really um, when you say shut down. I just stopped. I just stopped writing. I yeah. felt so lost. I was. I was. I mean, we're. T I can't believe we're spending all this time on my, me being like a teenager. Um, this is the <laughs> show. This is what I do. <laughs> this is what you do. Okay. <laughs> all right, man. Um, yeah, but I remember being like seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and I just felt like I'm never going to write again. And I suddenly, I had really felt like I had uh, this thing in my life that was so all-consuming, and it just was gone. I really felt that way, and it was kind of this private crisis that. Um, I remember, and so I got involved in the in the visual arts, and uh, in, in something about that clicked at the time. So you know, and then that later on that precipitated you know the name change and whatever. Yeah. But um, but yeah, and it wasn't until until later that I came back around to writing. Yeah. How much later? Um, when I graduated from college, um, I had the chance to get an MFA like in in the visual arts, and and it just felt really. 
I didn't want to go back into school. It just didn't feel right. It, it just felt like I, you know, I wanted to like live life to whatever that meant. And, uh, at the same time I got an invitation to go to this, um, like a, like an arts grant in Amsterdam. And, um, so I ran over there. And so for two years I was there making, um, video art. You do and a lot of drugs? <laughs> actually, no. Yeah. I, yeah, that's not my poison. But, uh, but any, and also not that many Dutch people no, I was like, hanging out with. That's for the tourists. Totally. It's for the, it, there's a little bit of that attitude, which is really funny. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at some point while I was there, I, I got, um, I was working with different actors for these uh, short, kind of like short film video art pieces meant for gallery spaces. And at some point, I just stopped caring whether or not the actors showed up. I just really liked writing out these strange scenarios for them. And I realized that all I wanted to do was kind of be alone on my laptop. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, wait a second. That's how it happens. It's <laughs> totally how it I'm happens. I'm way happier when I'm not around people. Well, uh, there's definitely, um, there's a sort of rhythm, obviously, to to to, to writing that is, is only for people who are tweaked in some funny way. I, I don't know. Like, oh, this is great. I'm just sitting alone <laughs> with a computer. It could be a mental illness. Could... Let's just be honest. <laughs> it's not even, I don't even think that's like a rogue theory. No, I don't either. You know, so... um, spiritually, mm. how were you raised? Um, because this factors into your book. Yes. This is the foundation. Yeah. There's some foundation, the combination of your uh, parental influences, uh, from a religious standpoint and maybe like a temperamental standpoint, this Cretan Cuban combination. <laughs> um, but tell me like, what, what, like how were you raised spiritually? Um, well, my, um, my mother was raised very Catholic. She even went to a convent school, like a boarding school. Um, and my dad was technically Greek Orthodox, but n never really had particular emotional connections to that it was just something his family you know did so um i was baptized greek orthodox but um but really the influence was on my mother's side you know catholicism and um you know the stories uh the stories of the martyrs the artwork the all of the ritual the robes the you know all of that ceremony it just was really seductive and and i i have strong memories of that from when i was a kid like going to church with her yeah going to church and but my but the most important part of this is is really the fact that my mother was also politically liberal and a feminist and had no particular respect for the pope you know she she taught me at a really we had very adult conversations when i was very young you know sort of like there's bureaucracy. The church is bureaucracy. No, I was reading. Like right? in your book, your, your mom said, uh, what, is it, what did she say? Like, he's just a man who thinks he knows what God thinks. Right, something. exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that was her line about the Pope. Although I think I think she's she's more in favor of Francis at the moment. Well, yeah, but... Francis is the li liberals <laughs> love Francis. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that like yeah. plans out. Though, but, uh, you know, not to like get off on a tangent, but mm. I get excited about Francis in certain, like just the fact that he acknowledges that climate science is legitimate. Like I get like, you know, it shows you how low the bar is. You're like, oh, my God, the guy believes that science is legitimate. You yeah, know? we get really excited about these but things. But he's not a liberal. Like, you know, like when you look at it, you know. No, but, you know, this is um, – I, I forget what the statistic, you know, what the actual figures are. But there was a survey taken not that long ago of American Catholics that I noticed um, where the majority of American Catholics um, actually sort of – practice a cobbled together improvised form of catholicism and they said this in the sur survey you know like well we we really want to be a, a part of the church 
but in order to do that, we have personally had to make these little changes, no. you know, right. Because the dogma like, <laughs> is just intolerable. So, but I think that that's actually, um, I think that that's really, uh, there's something hopeful about that. You know, to me, to my mind, that people want a kind of a, a connection to religion and spirituality, but they're also trying to make it something that they can live with right now. I mean, especially for women in relation to organized sure, religion, yeah. I just... There was just no chance of me signing up for the Catholic. But Church. your parents didn't pressure you. Like it wasn't no, like oh, you, you got it. Did you get confirmed? No, 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 no. I was I was baptized Greek, oh, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, right? right? And then it didn't really go much farther than that. You your know, your dad doesn't so. seem like a religious. He's not the guy that's no, pushing. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, that it was. It was always sort of um, a combination of like an intellectual approach to religion, and then also at the same time, like this gut emotional connection to. Um, you know, like my, my my mother will always light candles by the photos of, of our family members who have died and, you know, will pray at certain times for certain reasons and there's a certain amount of, um, you know, maybe superstition in the family. Um, and you grew up with that as a kid. I think maybe yeah, yeah. kids, like, you know, their imaginations are wide open. They're, obvious, they're obviously more uh, easily influenced. Like if somebody, yeah. t- if I told my daughter there's a ghost in the, you know, on the roof, she'd probably believe me. <laughs> You know, at least for a little while. Do you, do you enjoy manipulating your children? Love it. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's uh, – there was definitely that sense in the background that, that certain things kind of fall outside of, you know, what logic and science can explain. That was definitely part of my upbringing. And it's not uncommon with, you know, especially like Latin Catholicism. Sure. But, you know, this sense of – the reason why I brought up that, that sur- Catholic surveys, um, you know, I think – I, I really like this idea that you're allowed to improvise to some degree with your spirituality. And that's something that I, I've i seen a lot with the, you know, the witchcraft community in this country, that there's a sense that, um, you know, you have every right to, um, you know, be more actively a part of shaping your own religious practice. Uh, well, and, and but the thing is, and this is interesting, because you have these, these traditions. I was raised Catholic. I... Okay, yeah, here we I, go. Yeah, yeah, but I haven't been to church since I was like 15 years old, 14 years old. I was out early. Mm-hmm. Um, but I come from a deeply Catholic, like my like four of my aunts were nuns. One of my uncles is a priest. Four? What? Something like that. They they gave up the habit, but it was like a, from the South, they went off to the convent. And then wow, they were, yeah. And they left the convent and like, was it three of them got married? I think it was four, there was four nuns and three of them got married. But um, you have these traditions and I think there's something to that, you know, the ritual, um, passed down. I understand, I can, I can access why that would be important and why that would bring comfort to people and all that kind of stuff. But when you talk about improvising religion and you talk about making it your own, um, which is, I think, I think what you're saying, it seems like we need to update for our times. And a lot of times when it comes to religion, there can be too much emphasis placed on looking backward. Mm. Would you agree? I mean, because like I think there should be a balance between tradition and ritual, but also being willing to experiment, being willing to say, oh, you know what? We got some new information or this doesn't work or this is silly. There's really not <laughs> a, a demon lizard named Satan. And, you know, or maybe there is. But I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, Let's table the demon lizard <laughs> for this generation. Um, if well, we could please table the demon well, lizard. Well, okay. So what I should I mean, I think I think we're kind of dipping into book territory a little bit here. I, I um, what I should say is so. So 
Witches of America is is basically based on the last five or six years that I spent, um, you know, uh, spending time with and um, uh, also practicing with, to some degree, the pagan community in this country. And so that is, you know, part of that was like trying to create a portrait um, that I'd never seen before. I don't, you know, I think this is this is something new, like creating a portrait for the main for a mainstream audience of. Um, a new, a new movement within you know religion in this country, and uh, that exists in larger numbers than people might suspect. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it could be as many as one million Americans right now, all over the country, who you know consider themselves pagan. And so, and, and pagan is you know uh, when people say the word witch now, um, most people who identify as as witches in this country today are. Pagan. What which... is a pagan? <laughs> you know, <'cause... laughs> I'd love to answer that question. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, there's uh, paganism is sort of like it. It's a. It's kind of a, a funny analogy, but very helpful. If you look at it as Christianity, let's say, then there's different denominations within it, right? So certain pagans are actually more like Protestants or Baptists or you know Catholics. Um, but there's something that everyone has in common, like certain like core beliefs. So basically, uh, you know, pagans believe that nature is sacred. Um, that uh, I'm a pagan. Yeah, you're totally a pagan. Yeah. <laughs> then men and men and women are are equal, and that uh, they're equally male and female forces that make up the universe. I'm with you. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and many pagans are also um, polytheists, so they believe that there are that there's more than one god or goddess, um, and then that breaks down by tradition, you know, who, which god or goddess or groups of gods or goddesses you work with. So this is where I get lost. This is where you get yeah, lost. Yeah. It's, you know, that's okay. Um, and um, there's it's also fundamentally mystical as a tradition. There's no... There doesn't need to be any go-between, you know. There's no idea that, well, I need to have this entire church hierarchy in order to communicate with my god or goddess, right? Like, in theory, at least, each individual could train to be initiated as a priest or priestess. And that's, I think, very appealing to a lot of people. And definitely as a, as a woman, the idea that you obviously have this fundamental right to be a religious leader in your community is you know kind of a, a strong point sure so um and then there's great spells and you know robes and dancing. things that there's dancing there's yeah. you know uh there are a lot of things that um you know aesthetically uh live up to what you're hoping for <laughs> well well, more like, you know, the, some of the rituals are really beautiful. What's great is you don't need a fancy church or cathedral or synagogue. You know, you can make any place, especially out in nature, sacred, right? And so you can stand in a circle with a, you know, let's say with your coven, because that is actually, you know, a, a real term. Is it pronounced coven? Yeah. Not, I've been saying coven for, <laughs> for way too long. Just how much I know. Yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely a giveaway. Um, <laughs> such, such, such a bro, with the coven. Yeah, it's not no coven. Coven, okay. but um, but yeah, you stand in a circle and and uh, and um, you know the people do use ritual daggers or wands or chalices. Um, you know there is this idea of sort of you know people chant sometimes under the moon. Okay, so how do you get from Upper East Side, New York City? Harvard, oh, here we go. Here we go. Cretan, Cuban, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, to standing in a circle in the woods with the dagger. Do you know what I'm saying? How do you get from that to wanting to explore 
the occult. Hmm. And is that the appropriate use of the word, the occult? Does, I mean, does that encompass all this? Or I mean, I think people use it as an umbrella term, okay. you know. That's what uh, I mean. But um, since I don't yeah, know how witchcraft. to pronounce coven, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> witchcraft. Um, uh, let's see. I, I mean, I look. I, I see. I, I see this whole movement as being on a continuum with Catholicism, Judaism, whatever. Um, Wait, didn't paganism like is, isn't that like a predecessor or an antecedent of? Yeah, exactly. Well, the idea is that like the the pagan movement today is very much sparked by um, and inspired by uh, you know the pre Abrahamic period. You know, so before Christianity, Judaism, Islam, um, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, where people were polytheists, and um, so some of the practices are inspired by practices from that time um or or you know trying to kind of recapture um what religious life might have been like then we don't have that much information we just have pieces so you know beyond that people are um sometimes improvising and then there are other traditions within the witchcraft community that are you know separate from that but but yeah it's i mean it's really worthwhile to remind people that actually plenty of us have ancestors who worshipped many gods and goddesses and this is um it's it's not that radical of an idea it's just in in america it really stands out the only people we know of um typically as polytheists or maybe you know friends who are hindu right and otherwise you know that's where it it ends and you start to kind of feel like a little alienated like oh well you, you believe in god oh no you believe in okay <laughs> wait what so you work with this goddess when it's like you know this time of year, and I feel this... like in I feel like in Catholicism or maybe Christianity more broadly, but but my experience of Catholicism is that polytheism they use the saints for that. It's like oh, you, yeah. you have your God, yeah, but then exactly. it's like I remember my grandmother used to pray to a certain saint when she like lost her glasses or something. You know? <laughs> there's like one for every. There's like one for saint everything. Lost stuff. Yeah, there probably is, actually. There is one. I'm there sure. Is one. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I mean, that's the thing is. Um, it's not that far fetched for someone who, you know, was raised uh, Catholic in part to uh, to be, you know, to be drawn to be drawn to the pagan community because uh, actually I I've met so many people who were raised Catholic who then turned to witchcraft and um, or Baptist, you know, um, like a lot of different kinds of backgrounds. But I think the more I'm tempted to think that the more disciplined your religious upbringing was. Um, you know, the more you're left longing for something, like feeling like something's missing later on, even if you've rejected your specific upbringing. And I think, you know, that's kind of what happened for me. I So many of my friends are artists and writers, whatever, um, skeptics, you know, agnostics, atheists. And, uh, and yet at some point um, in my so-called adult life, I started to feel like that, that didn't give anyone an edge, you know? It sort of sounded more rational and like maybe you were you were more logical grounded person to 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 be to be dismissive of you know religious devotion but it doesn't answer fundamental questions that everybody has you know and i think like why are we here yeah like well why are we here why am i why do i wake up and get out of bed every every day like what is the point of all of this and when i die what the hell's going to happen to me you yeah know? what is going to happen well you will have to read this book to find out. No. <laughs> really? Um, I read the last chapter just to see if it was going to be there. <laughs> Did you? It's a, well, a lot happens in the last chapter, actually. Yeah. I will say, I will say because I, 
I am slightly proud of this. It, 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 this book really does it does pick up momentum. Like a lot, a lot, a lot happens in this book, um, and uh, and it's um, I've had friends and and family um, recently now that they've had a chance to read it. You know, say to me like, oh, you know, over the last few years, you've sort of um, insinuated what you've been up to, but it's no one. No one knew. You've been in the swamp. No one what? No one knew um, (laughs) the extent of it. Um, Did you keep it secret? I mean... Or did uh, you just not bring it up? Like, unless somebody asked you. I mean, of course, you know, I worked on this book, uh, solely on this book. Some of the relationships in this book go back about six years. But, um, you know, because of the documentary that I made. And and then... Which is? uh, Which is uh, called American Mystic. And is that what kind of guided you into this? Because I still want to know, like, the path that you took to get... I mean, you started to have these questions several years ago as you were hanging Mm. out with all these atheist artists the godless people the godless people (laughs) and uh, i get that you know i've called myself an atheist at times i don't know what i am i just don't know what's going on that's that's me (laughs) i'm a big shrug um but i also feel like uh a spiritual life or whatever you want to call it it's hard to there's a language problem when it when you start to talk about this stuff it's very easy to step step into words that can be easily dismissed like pagan like witch i mean you know what i'm saying like these are Mm -hmm. these are um they they provoke a a response these words and i think a lot of people it's easy to dismiss but i don't know what else to call it you know like the spirit the that part of you you know like how you deal with uh loss how you deal with the inevitability of your own death that's what i mean well it's very you know it's this it's the stuff that's really you know by definition kind of beyond language right so what one of the to to describe the experience that you have in a ritual or when someone someone what someone might have when they're praying or um you know if someone has some kind of revelation trying to then share that with someone else i mean language kind of breaks down and then then people fall back on horrible terrible self-helpy sounding language or you know super pop christian sounding cliches or something like that um i think that talking about faith is really embarrassing and messy and so let's imperfect. do it <laughs> oh great <laughs> terrific terrific um yeah i mean what happened is i i um you know, as as a as a journalist, as a writer, I have just always uh, been drawn to um, communities that have a, a kind of self-contained uh, belief system that that sets them apart from the mainstream in some way. You know, or that isn't immediately translatable to to the mainstream. You know, and, and it could be. Um, uh, it doesn't have to be a religious group, but just that idea of like, okay, what is that community dynamic? Um, what what kind of meaning do they take from that? What are they sacrificing in order to you know s- keep this? Could uh, be like NASCAR fans. It could, yes, although less likely for me, <laughs> but sure. Um, yeah. So I uh, then at a certain point I um, I realized I want you know I, w- I wanted to make a, a doc, and um, and I thought I was out. Uh, having drinks with this uh, young uh, guy, producer, Nick Shoemaker. And um, he was just being a, he was being a real jerk, actually, because I, I, I hadn't had the doc idea yet. I was working in journalism and um, and just felt busy and underpaid and just trying to get a handle on my life. And we had had a few whiskeys, and it was very late. This 
disgusting dive bar on the Lower East Side <laughs> that I think has since closed, I hope. Um, and he said to me, you know, if you came up with a concept, I would produce a documentary feature. And and I it really pissed me off because I just I, – I was like, well, I don't have an idea, buddy. Like, you know, why are you setting me up like this? So I ended up writing on a cocktail napkin um, back when they had cocktail napkins in bars or like it was a coaster, you know, before they started putting ads on both sides. So you now you can't write notes right. on coasters. <laughs> so like all these drunken revelations are being lost, lost, lost yes. right? <laughs> like genius could be happening in these terrible bars, except it's like Amstel light on both sides. Yeah. Um, but so I wrote American mystic three people, you know, this was my high concept. I had a title and <laughs> three people. But the title stuck. And the title stuck miraculously. Yeah. Um, it's embarrassing. Uh, how you know the the gestation period was just whiskey fueled um but uh yeah so so the idea was just okay let's have an excuse to go out and just you know kind of contribute to the to to the to uh an awareness that there's more going on in this country then so how did you what you did know. you do like what do you go online and start googling like who how did you get in touch with oh, people gosh i don't know i mean i um in the same way lots of journalists do research there's yeah there's of course you use the internet and you make some phone calls and you know all that not so sexy stuff but the process was really long i mean i i um because you got to find a good one you gotta you gotta find good people yeah well it was also because it was a film there's you know someone whose story seems special in some way um someone who is willing to talk on camera, someone who can speak on camera in a way that's going to be relatable. And already when you're talking about, you know, uh, fringe religious communities, that that's, you need someone on camera who can be relatable. So the audience is, is, is sort of like more open-minded and finds them accessible and all these kinds of questions. So like six months later, <laughs> um, you know, we were finally ready to shoot. And along the way, I had visited with a number of different um, pagan communities and taken part in some very basic public rituals, like um, in different parts of Tennessee, in different parts of California, in, you know, upstate New York. Um, and then I met this uh, pagan priestess named Morpheus, who's, Morpheus. yeah, same age as me. Um, and she was just so striking and fascinating. She was smart and funny and... Um, she she was living way off the grid in Northern California. And uh, she and her then-husband had... Um, they had this 100-acre parcel of wild land, like wild, uh, barely habitable, I mean, really wild. And they had borrowed, um, you know, all kinds of dirt movers and things like that and managed to create this um, platform high up on this plateau surrounded by trees and with other pagan friends had dragged these massive stones from different parts of the property and built their own stone henge for rituals so that basically this could become a sanctuary where pagans from all around the Bay Area could drive out for different holidays or, you know, ceremonies and um, and practice inside this circle as the sun is going down. I mean, it was, it, and meanwhile, they're living, they're camping out in this double-wide trailer home and making all these sacrifices to keep you know, keep this going. I just found that so compelling and I really respected that as, as a really wild project. Well, yeah. People who so. have the courage of their convictions, however, yeah, however crazy the convictions might seem at first blush, 
You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what you, I mean, people are dragging stones and living on this. You know what I'm saying? Living. Yeah, in, very formidable challenge. Yeah, you're like, what are these people? But then you're like, my God, they're like following through. They're doing. They're not. Yeah. just They're not just falling in line. They're they're pursuing some vision or whatever it is. Yeah. I find that admirable. I like to say walking the walk. I really love that phrase. You yeah. know, I just just walking the walk it makes me think of Johnny Cash or something. But um, yeah, and so in the process of making the doc and shooting with her. Um, I realized that there was this much bigger, you know, a, a little time went by once we finished shooting. And I realized that something something bigger was going on for me, um, that I was a lot more personally curious. And also the writer side of me at the same time felt that there was this much bigger story that wasn't told through the doc. The doc is very minimal and very lyrical. You only have, what, 90 minutes or whatever. Yeah, it's like 82 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah... Um, that's when I, that's when I realized that this was this something about this was the seed of a, a book, and I thought. I and you th- were interested in participating, or at well, least learning more. Well, I wanted more. to get closer personally. You Why? Know? Um, what was I it think, about it? I think I. I think I. Um, I think I. I felt kind of ready to 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 more directly confront some of the questions about religion that were left over from, from my childhood, you know, and, um, and the fact that this was, you know, at least on the surface, so far away from my upbringing, kind of, it felt freeing, you know, it, it was a form of spirituality that, um, you know, had these obvious ritual connections to Catholicism, but was just so different and so, so outside of what I associated with like organized religion. And so, okay, well, it's like a clean slate. It's like a clean slate. And it's also not, it's not, um, there was, there was this feeling of like, maybe this time it'll be different, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to put it, to put it like crudely. Um, and, uh, and also this this particular individual is a big part of that because I, I related to her and she she was very immediately was so charismatic in ritual and, and that was really um you know, that that was kind of exciting and fascinating to me. But it was very, very like toes in the water kind of thing. The the writer part of me was in full effect. You know, this is wow, this is a this is a chance to tell like a a new chapter in the story of faith in this country holy crap right like, well, that's oh an, my god it brings up an interesting <laughs> question it brings up kind of like the truman capote question or whatever when you're a journalist or you're working in long-form nonfiction, hmm. and you kind of know you have a book you, you know you have it hooked you know you've caught the fish or whatever you want to whatever hmm. you know analogy you want to use um do you ever have a sense like that part of your interest was driven by the fact that you had the book. I mean, I guess it's like chicken or the egg. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like saying, I mean, this is this is this is the thing. It's like saying, what would your, who would you be if you weren't a writer? You know, I don't, I don't. Oh, this is going to get really lofty here, <laughs> but I don't, I don't do this just as work. I like to think of it as work when I start to get intimidated by it you know like just sit down and do work like everybody else but it's but it's it's something much more um, it's a calling uh oh <laughs> just i don't mean well, to put words in your it's mouth it's just but... very it just is so much and so deeply a part of who i am you know and i think uh that's that's just it so i don't know i don't know how, what certain experiences would be like but if I, mean, I were a different person when you're you standing know? in the circle or you're down in the swamp you know all this experiential learning that you did all this experiential journalistic work that you did like 
there has to be at least some part of you that's thinking like, okay, so if I dance, this will be better for the book. Or you, are you thinking like oh, that? Oh man. Well, no, it was. I mean, look, look seriously. It was there's the, what's what makes this different from straight journalism as a as a as a project is that really it is there's a maybe. 50%, I don't know, some percentage, some big percentage, uh, is memoir. You know, it really is because it's it's kind of like my, it's an, um, a recounting of my own, like, personal experiments and questioning and searching and all that stuff. Um, and so it's very clear, you're very clearly getting my subjective point of view in a lot of situations, which I thought was also fair, though, if you looked at it from a journalistic perspective, because this is subjective stuff. Like, it isn't something you can measure with a ruler, you know, what what, what a ritual feels like to all the people in the room. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, th- though there's a part of me, you know, the part of me that is a writer that is, you know, I, I just really, I f- fixate on details everywhere I go. What, de- what details know? are you fixating on right now? <laughs> well, that there is a, there's a tiny uh, pink uh, bicycle here that's clearly my escape bike. <laughs> I- <laughs> Everyone after the interview is done rides away on that pink bicycle. <laughs> yeah, Part it's great. It's a little short for me, but you know, I think I can make it. <laughs> yeah. um, so having done all of this and spending five years of your life is a good, that's a good amount of time. Yeah, like three and a half, three and a half or four on the book, and then yeah, in the dock before that for two years. So you've been immersed in this for a while. Mm. How did it change you? Mm. Um, there did isn't, yeah, there isn't, a, there isn't like a clean um, self-help kind of answer to that. You know, it's it's not like I I there was a part of me that obviously was aware that. Um, there's a kind of Oprah book, you know, where you have this, you go on a journey and you, you know, spiritual questions along the way. And then you come out the other side and you tell the reader, reader, you know, here's the deal. Seriously. You know, this is the answer. And, and I, I I, am a witch. I am. Yeah. (laughs) And it is so gratifying to me. And Um, under your seat is, (laughs) well, you know, what is it? A cow's tongue. Um, eh, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, that's uh, only for very specific circumstances. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I knew the whole time that that, that was not, I, I wasn't going to be writing that kind of book. You know, I feel like, um, it was out, it was, com- it was definitely transformative writing the book and going through these experiences and, you know, asking myself these questions and, uh, I know myself a lot better now and I have, um, kind of like a, 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 a more of an open sense of, you know, m- my own relationship to religion. I don't know, but I don't, I can't, I'm, I'm still not in a position to label myself, you know? Do you have better clarity on like, uh, what happens when we die? Do you have better clarity on why we're here? Those big questions, you know what I'm saying? Like after, because it's like it seems like that's the core of the core of it is like trying to find some sort of better understanding of those big questions. Like, why else would you spend five years of your life? Well, I think I think the um, I, I mean I'm, I laugh at that question just because because it's you know it's sort of it's a big one, but um, I, the the ending of the book is very specific and really personal and heartfelt and I wrote it in one sitting straight through and I just and I knew I knew I was like this is this is the truest thing I could write right now after um you know the last few years and uh 
So I think there is definitely a revelation at the end of the book for me. Um, but it's it's not something like as clear cut as, okay, I'm going to sign up with this specific group for life or you, the reader, should do X. Right, you know? right. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I hope that other people will see something they can relate to in, in, in the ending. And it's like a... Uh... I think it's something that maybe people going in might not expect themselves to be able to relate to. This uh, this world or like yeah, these this, practices? this world. Oh yeah, I mean, look, I think um, I I um, I f- was very much driven by um, the sense that I could I could serve a purpose in writing this book. Um, I mean, I was driven by the desire to write prose and to have experiences and all of these other things that go into write, you know, writing a book. And but I was really driven under underneath that with this idea that I could kind of um, almost like trick the average mainstream reader into just being more open minded about uh, witchcraft and the occult and like this community that um, I think you know, plenty of people feel is otherwise like very alien or they've all kinds of baggage about it. And, and, you know, even just the word, witch, right. Um, as a reader, in my experience, I've always found it to be a really powerful device when someone, you know, there's this kind of, uh, there's the narrator, there's the guide who maybe you get the impression you have something basic in common with. And so together you go into this territory that you might otherwise be shut off to. And suddenly you're going in and, and you're, 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 I don't know, there's a different level of respect and attentiveness as you read as a result of that. But also, um, you know, with my documentary, um, one thing I, I realized very quickly is I really wanted to emphasize, you know, scenes of the people in the film at home with their kids or, you know, um, like cleaning up their yard or driving to work or whatever. And, and then you get, um, a better sense of, you know, what they actually practice because it's much harder to, uh, shut people out when you've already kind of formed that sort of like human. I was going to say you're humanizing them. Yeah. It's like that sort of, you know, human bond. I just think something as simple as that I think is incredibly, um, can be really powerful it as you know as a result i don't know if this is a book that is for the pagan community because i think there's a desire in the pagan community for like well just just you know um get ready for the pagan backlash well there, there it's already you know there's already a certain amount of controversy online actually from oh the there community. is yeah okay. um and, and that's another part of it that i think is very fascinating is that um you know as much as like you know you talk about the pagan community, you know, in, in some ways looking backwards and drawing upon ancient traditions and rituals and whatever, there's also like an embrace of technology. They communicate using Skype. They have, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Oh, sure. There's oh. like a whole online thing oh, going yeah, on. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it's really, I, I loved being able to um, kind of update the sense of, you know, uh, how do you practice witchcraft? You know, just in terms of like culturally or in, what do we think that would entail? And like, so when I uh, eventually, um, you know, in about halfway through the book, I guess, I uh, I decide that it's time for me to study myself or train in some way. And I'm, I'm, I look for a teacher, um, which is considered, you know, like a pretty intimate relationship. Um, and, 
you know, you get we ended up getting in touch over email. You know, and there was right. all there's all this sense of like, oh, oh my goodness, how is this <laughs> going to happen? But it's a seri- It starts out with a series of emails, and and that's just because we're just alive right now. We're not living in caves, you know, like huddled around fires no, like, or something. So like a, a, a crow <laughs> didn't deliver you like a parchment. You That'd know, be amazing. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. I think that would be so terrific. But um, yeah, people don't have that much time to be like training animals to deliver. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so, so there's a practical side to all of this, you know. And there is a practical side. There's also like mystical, magical. There are spells. There's a part of the book where you consider um, casting a spell on another woman, mm. like your uh, boyfriend's ex, right? Like, yeah, that, like that, you that's get, a chapter. Yeah, that's, that's in a, a chapter. Right. Okay. So that seems like a heavy thing to do. Like you, you, you decided to do this, um, and and you can do this. Like they, there are spells that you can cast on people. Do you believe in that stuff? Like um, that they work. I mean, I, I'm very open-minded and I think, you know, I'm very open-minded. I, I think, uh, I'm terrified someone's cast a spell on me right now. <laughs> you know, what well, if I don't know about it? <laughs> then you could cast a protection spell. How do I do that? Um, but I can point you to some literature. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, look, that chapter for me, um, this, but you know, there there aren't many. Um, I I don't like list spells or how tos or anything like that in the book because it's not it's not that kind of book. But um, but I did want in one place to have uh, to include a particular spell, and it's a very uh, evocative, kind of intense one. And and I I chose it because it was sort of I I thought it was important for me to admit that I had a moment of where my motivation to possibly finally you know, uh, carry out a very intricate spell with something really human, like something that I think, you know, a kind of like emotional desperation that a lot of people can relate to. And it happened to come at a time when I was just, I was immersed in the witchcraft community. And so I just felt like, okay, this may be the solution. This may be it. And, um, and so in that chapter, I really go through, you know, my different feelings and thoughts and hesitations around the idea of casting this sort of graphic spell. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, um, I respect spell work. I don't know whether or not it always works, but I respect it. And I I really would not want someone who considers herself to be or seems to be a serious witch or pagan priestess to, you know, um, uh, want to put a hex on me. Um, not that, but I should be clear that, like, this business of hexes and whatnot, I mean, it's just not a huge part of this community at all. It, it They're really, not all hexing one another. No. I mean, <laughs> East Coast, West Coast That's, pagans. That sounds really exciting when you say it like that, but it's it's more it's more you know um, the idea is to evolve personally, and and you you might do a, a spell or a prayer for around um, healing someone or yourself, or you know doing something good for your family or your community. That I like kind of that. Stuff. Mm. I want some of those. You want some of those? Okay. Yes. There's there's, there's plenty of them. Okay. Um, so you said the word certainty. It's, it would be so nice. Like, I feel like people of faith a lot of times have that. 
they have like a sense of like this is it's like a sense of order mm. and as much as i can't go there i do envy it well that's something i that's something i talk about like right up top in the book that there's um i've i've uh yeah i i really i i do have this kind of envy of the the sense of um finding a community that you lock in with that clearly and personally and where there are these practices and beliefs that just you know that's it i this this gives shape to to my life and my day to day um i mean i think that's, that sounds kind of great i i just haven't um found myself in a situation where i feel like oh i should let go i should just completely let go but you know the the flip side of that is um uh, the the individuals who have impressed me the most along the way, like regardless of what community, but certainly, you know, over the course of writing this book, um, were people who are also very comfortable with skepticism and with questioning or doubt from others that it just totally fine. You know, um, I never liked that, uh, you know, my sense was that if you're a Catholic, you, there, there's not really much room for questioning. I would ask a lot of questions as a little kid and get kind of shut down by the priest, you know, that just looked at like a troublemaker or right. something. I, I had a lot more fun with my, uh, like having dinner at my Jewish friend's house where like, you know, you could, you could just say at the dinner table, you could say, I don't even know if there's a God. And, and it would actually be, well, okay, well, that's, I guess that's our dinner conversation tonight. It's, it wasn't some sort of, it wasn't going to induce a panic attack. It wasn't a transgression. It was. It wasn't a transgression exactly. And I think um, that was that was sort of a distinction that became clearer to me. You know, like to to encounter certain uh, very devout, focused uh, uh, witches or priestesses who were totally fine with me asking questions and the idea that. Um, there are plenty of people out there who may not, you know, understand what we do, and they may even think it's it's stupid. And um, that's just—it doesn't make me stupid. It just means that there's, you know, there's a gap there. It's fine. We can talk about it. Um, How do these people get into it? Like, is it? I mean, it's because I mean, Catholicism or Greek Orthodox or Judaism. Let's see, family. You pass it down. Mm. Are people who get into uh, like witchcraft? Is it like, oh, mom? Like, what were the stories that mm. you would hear? Do you know what I'm saying? Or is it something that, like, yeah. people, like, seek out on their own, you know, when they break when, away from something more Yeah, family? well, there's, there's, I saw plenty of that. There were a lot of people with stories of, you know, uh, having been raised Catholic or Baptist or what have you. Um, there were then also West Coast people who, whose parents were, um, you know, a little more hippie-ish. And, and so when they were kids, they were introduced to certain kinds of, like, Eastern religion or... Uh, Hindu mysticism or, you know, meditation. And so then that suddenly... like See, I'm a meditator, so my daughter's going to be into witchcraft, maybe. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. Wait till she turns, <laughs> what, 13, 14? Oh, God. <laughs> You're screwed. Yeah. yeah, I'll send her to you. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and there's also, um, at the same time now, it's, you know, we're entering kind of like nearly third generation with this stuff, or, or actually third generation. So so I, I, met, I met kids who were... Um, you know, teenagers who actually, well, well, their parents were pagan, and so this seemed perfectly natural to them. Um, so were they messed up at all? Was it, it, was, it, was, it was okay? Well, you know, it's funny because there, I, I, I think that there is, you know, from from the outside, there's some concern of like how what this community would be like for children. But I mean, all the I, I met a lot of really great parents. It's 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 sort of um, 
I mean, I think when people have a strong sense of community and spirituality, it, sometimes that can be great for kids. Sure. Um, but there was also no sense of, I, you know, I didn't get any sense that, that anyone was like trying to shove witchcraft into their children's lives. It was very like a kind the kids of aren't going to rebel. Like, <laughs> I know. I'm not going to be a witch mom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to become an evangelical. You just watch. <laughs> um, so your necklace, I just want to like ask you about it. Oh, sure. That's not, there's, is there any kind of like significance rel- related to paganism or witchcraft with that? Oh, this is, so this is wearing this sort of like heavy silver piece. Um, it is actually a piece of designer jewelry by a hipster lady. Okay. But, um, but I, I bought it for myself as sort of like a symbolic gesture when I, when I, um, had only a few months to finish the book and I guess I, uh. It's the sort of thing that people do all the time. You know, you don't have to call it witchcraft, but um, where where you just decide that an object has some kind of power. You yeah. know, I'm going to wear this thing all the time because it's giving me good luck. You know, like a lot right. of people will do that. But, you know, there's there's a sense of, um, um, you know, creating a talisman for yourself. I sure. mean, that's what's funny is there are little things that people do all the time that, you know, if you wanted to label it, you know, that's sort of a form of witchcraft. There's a lot of folk magic that people have in their families, you know, where the, your grandmother hangs a clove of garlic in this place by the wherever, you know, I, whatever it is. I don't know. I'm making that up. But, but, um, and we just absorb that into our lives. And so, so it's just, uh, there, there are small things that, um, actually are more of a, create more of a sense of like a connecting the dots than you might think. Yeah. Like tattoos can do that even. I think people. Oh, do. sure. Yeah. yeah uh, they're definitely, um, and I have none. You have none. I have none either. Yeah, so yeah, that's my problem. Um, <laughs> but yeah, ritual people. People. I've known people who've gotten tattoos as as a ritual or like a reminder. A remind. Oh yeah, you sure. You know, like as a like a like this is if I'm forgetting or I'm slipping or I'm you know not thinking straight, I look down at my arm and mm. you know or like a way of remembering someone who's died or yeah. whatever. Yeah, like different ways of and to have that on your body. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you know. Uh, Sometimes this country seems incredibly religious, and sometimes this country seems incredibly um, capitalist and it secular. Doesn't, it doesn't seem very spiritual to me. Well, like, again, we're getting into silly season with the words, but like it seems like a very religious country. But I worry about our spirit, like as a nation. Like, God, I, now that I'm sending, I, I worry about our spirit as a nation. But you know, it seems like we let certain uh, deep parts of ourselves atrophy or deep truths be left unattended i don't know it's easy to be disappointed when you look out and listen Mm. listen to some of the dialogue at least for me it is well i think maybe maybe part of what you're talking about is sort of um what we were talking about a little while ago the sense of um i i don't know uh like being able to update is not a good word but but to revitalize you know to to, i think right now to talk about what the pagan community is about it's i think it's really good timing for that because there is this sense in that community of like more actively taking a role in like shaping your identity spiritually you know um that's yeah that's that that gets at it better like taking responsibility for it mm. rather than passively accepting some dogma mm. i think there's something too that's it's a more active process like you're getting your hands dirty 
Well, there's, you know, there was a big um, Pew Religion survey, I think just a couple years ago, that, that showed that um, there was this general trend that um, people of uh, who were Christian, let's say, were um, leaving, like, large structured churches and megachurches and whatnot and moving more towards, like, smaller, more charismatic sects. You know, I mean, and also there are people who are, like, just leaving their parents' churches, and we don't know what happens to them in a survey, but but uh, but uh, but like the idea that this trend towards something like for younger people, especially just wanting something that is seems more personal, maybe more mystical, more of like a direct connection. Um, Plus, you can get lost in a megachurch. It's like small, smaller class size. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. yeah, I've not I've not done my megachurch time. So yeah. <laughs> um, strangely, uh, having grown up in New York, that's City, your next book. Yeah. Oh no. Are no. you done? Are you done with this? With 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 what? I don't know. Like all of it, mysticism, the witches, pagans. Like, are you? Have you cycled through it? And you're like, okay, I went, I saw, I wrote this book. Uh, like, do you still? Are you still going to participate? Like, you know what I'm saying? Where do I you? I think I think these kinds of personal questions for me, I'm now going to separate out from my writing. You know, for for a little while, the next project um, will be something totally, totally different. Okay. Um, uh, I don't, you know, I'm, I I don't see myself as someone who writes exclusively about religion, and and then, and certainly, like I've written about different kinds of things for you know in my long form journalism. Um, I have a large story coming out very soon about you know androids, so that's. The, you know, it's kind of related. It's, it is, feels related to me. It's a little existential, yes. uh, the fate of humanity kind of thing, yeah, yeah. life and death. I'm with you. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's important to for for me to yeah. I just feel drawn to something very different next. Yeah. Well, you spent five six years on it. <laughs> you did. I mean, you know, to make it sound like this. Wow, gosh, that's a lot of time. Oof, it seems like a very long time. I'm the kind of person who. Uh, you know, when when writers or documentary filmmakers talk about like, well, that took ten years, I just think, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. It goes like that, though. No, no, no way. I mean, I'm not. I don't have the temperament to be like this. This open ended ten year plus project. No <laughs> way. So the doc was like two two and a half years. The book three and a half plus years. Those are units I can think in ten years. You got no, just that's crazy. Forget talk. it, man. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Um, but you don't know what the next book is. You're taking a breather. Oh, I have some strong ideas, but I, I you don't. Uh, not yeah, gonna. I'm not gonna talk about it just yet. Yeah. Not on the record. Mm. And you're writing uh, journalism about androids. Yeah, well, yeah, about a, a few few stories in the pipeline um, that are on hold since I'm on like my my little book tour. And and just like and I don't want to press on something if you I'm not quite sure if you if you close the door on this or not, but. Uh, Having written the book, having done these five, six years of research and uh, experiential journalism or whatever, um, has it, did it change the way that you identify yourself from a spiritual religious standpoint? You say like, oh, I'm Christian, Cuban, Greek Orthodox, Catholic slash kind of a witch. No, like, I wouldn't say that. I okay. mean, I, I, um, I, I get, you know, I think more than anything at this point, I identify as an artist. You know, I mean, I think that's a sort of fundamental outsider identity in some ways. You sure. know, and I don't say, I don't say that to sound um, uh, fancy or like some kind of guerrilla person at all. But I think that that's kind of the reality. If you if this work is 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 like the central part of your life, and that really defines me more than almost anything else. But uh, other labels, I, I just 
I just haven't found other labels that I think are are true for me at the end of the day. Well, I can't tell you how much fun this has been. Um, and it's the perfect Halloween episode. I'm just, <laughs> of course, I'm just realizing this. Uh, I'm always late to the party. But I've had such fun. I appreciate you making time to stop by and sit in this garage. Of course. Uh, it this is now fun. time. The pink bicycle awaits you. I'm going to ride away on the little pink bike. Uh, I congratulate you on the book. And I wish you well on whatever comes next. Thank you so much. All right, guys. There you go. Alex Marr. Her book is called Witches of America. It's out there now from FSG. You can find Alex online at alex-marr.com. That's M-A-R. She's also on the Twitter. Her handle at Twitter is at underscore Alex underscore Marr. At underscore Alex underscore Marr. Does that make sense? Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the Other People app. Get the app. Sign up for premium. Support the show. That would, that would be uh, greatly appreciated. If you would like to uh, email me, my address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Communicate. I hope you have a good Halloween. Do you have a costume? I don't have a costume. I feel like I should have a costume. I'm at uh, the stage now with my daughter where I feel like she would appreciate it if I dressed up. She might think that's uh, neat. She's five. I don't like to dress up. I'm not huge into that, but uh, maybe I'll pull something together. I feel like it's like... uh, it's the windblown man costume where you just uh, put a coat hanger inside of a necktie. I've told you about this, haven't I? You put a like a wire coat hanger inside of a necktie and then position it so that the, you know bend it so that it looks like the necktie is like blowing over your left shoulder and then you just uh, you stick like leaves to your shirt. You untuck your shirt maybe and then you uh, you know style your hair to make it look like you're in a windstorm. You're windblown man. Does that make sense? Are you getting a visual on this? Please remember that Gaetano Donizetti died mad and that Herman Hess died in his sleep at the age of 85. That's it for now. Uh, Thanks once more to Alex Marr. Go get her book and uh, read it. It's interesting. It's unexpected. It's, uh, It's a good idea for a book. It's one of those books. It's like, why didn't I think about writing about that? Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks for all your support, as usual. Thanks to uh, Teddy Wayne, one more time, for writing about the show. I appreciate that. And uh, I will be back very soon with another uh, conversation with another writer or person involved in the narrative, literary arts, someone who uh, works in words. Until then, be safe over Halloween. Don't go nuts. I mean, go nuts, but don't hurt yourself. Try not to die over Halloween. You can manage that. Don't die in a costume. Don't wake up in the ER wearing like a sexy strawberry shortcake costume or assless chaps. <laughs>